The Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. The church is set as a light in the world. Let it not be changed into a dark lantern and turned backward upon the scribes and Pharisees. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. This sermon that we're listening to today was preached by Henry Van Dyke. It was preached in New York in February of 1895. Joel, Henry Van Dyke is just one of those guys who, as you read his life, you're you're surprised by how much one human can do and can be involved with. And I think the listener will quickly understand what I'm saying as I try to explain his story. Uh, he, he That wasn't what I expected. That was, and often it's not the, the person who draws me in, it's the sermon. And in this case, I didn't know much about him. Uh, and there is some definite controversies we'll go over with his life. But again, I, I just emphasize that this was one human's life and not several because I was blown away by how much he got involved with. Um, this sermon he's doing is the ruler you deserve. It's a little bit about politics, a little bit about government. And I know some people are going to go, oh, I'm interested in what that is. And some people are going to immediately tune out and go, I didn't, I didn't realize this was a skip week on Revive Thoughts. We encourage you to listen because much more than a sermon about rulers and leadership, it's a sermon about uh, who you need to be in your own home and what kind of life you need to live at home. Um, And I think it's really good. And it really goes along with the theme. Most sermons on politics that we've had on our show, whether it's Balthazar Hubmeyer, who did one, our last one we kind of covered on this subject, um, revolutionary war heroes uh, like Samuel uh, Rutherford or John Winthrop in the City on a Hill sermon, whatever it is, these guys kind of have a similar theme, which is if you don't have integrity, your leaders don't have integrity, then you will not run the nation well. They don't tend to take aside uh, politically into party politics, but they encourage people to live upright lives. And one of the reasons we put these sermons on our show also is because it's a common talked about subject. It was something that was important to preachers throughout history. And so we have to kind of include them because otherwise we'd be skipping a big chunk of it. If you are familiar with Van Dyke, you may have never heard of this guy before. The way I knew him was because of his story, The Other Wise Men or The Fourth Wise Men. Um, he was a, one of the many things he did was he wrote a lot of literature. Yeah, Van Dyke was born in Pennsylvania in 1852. His father was a prominent Presbyterian minister. In fact, their family could trace their roots back as immigrants from Holland as far back as the 1650s. Henry and his brother Paul both kind of became famous in their own unique ways. Paul Van Dyke became a famous historian. It seems almost like the father maybe kind of favored Paul more than... Uh, Henry, uh, he's quoted saying, Paul was born good, but Henry was saved by grace. Yeah, I get the feeling Henry was a bit of a bit of a hellraiser. Yeah, yeah maybe you know, a, a bit, bit of a, a rebellious kid growing up, yeah. Some people just kind of go through history knowing a lot of famous people. We see this in our episode from time to time. Spurgeon is one of those people. He just knew a lot of famous people. Kyler also knew a lot of famous people. Van Dyke fits into that category for sure. He, he has interactions with Robert E. Lee, with Mark Twain, Helen Keller, Lord Tenson, and President Woodrow Wilson. 
we do not know a ton about uh, Van Dyke's college days. What we do know is that he might have been a bit of a prankster, which is not really relevant to his grades or things that we normally hear. But there was something found in his school kind of college belongings when he was, after he had passed, and it was apparently a wanted poster that said basically like there's all these damages and pranks being done on campus. Who's the man? You know, there's like pictures on the on the wanted poster like let us know and we'll catch him. And then on the back. There was a little quote that he had written that said they had never caught him to HVD, which Henry Van Dyke's initials. Just kind of fun. It's just a different I love it. side to a, you know, a theologian of the past is that he was kind of a goofball. Um, I would love a wanted poster from my school. Yeah, days. I was about to say, like, I, I would, would I would hold on to that. I too. would do it. I would definitely have something similar, like, and I never got caught neither. So <laughs> But we also know he loved time in nature. Uh, he was a famous writer, but his very first article ever published of all the things he wrote about was complaining about the farms, wrecking the environment, using up too much of the land. There was these big agricultural farms and they were kind of rushing people in and they do kind of a chop shop and then they move on to the next farm. And he was like, You're ruining nature doing this. This was very important and dear to him. When he becomes a pastor his early sermons are all about encouraging people to spend time in nature and enjoy time with god and he also famously read psalms alongside the bible reading he would do every single day now this next part is just conjecture i have no way to know this but i think and i am imagining this next part of the story goes like this one day he's sitting in nature he's reading his psalm a day and then psalm uh, and another scripture too but the psalm he's in and it's all talking about nature and god's glory and nature i think he looked around he asked the question uh, where was the psalmist when he wrote this sermon? Was he outside like I am right now, just enjoying a nice, beautiful day? And this began an in-depth study on everything about Psalms, which eventually would become the story of the Psalms, where he would ask, you know, who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? What kind of poetry? Blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And this would be a huge uh, big deal, a kind of a cornerstone work on Psalms. It would be written and read by everybody, and everybody really enjoyed it. And like I said, I think it, I just imagine it started with him in just a park or something. And if that sounds a little weird to you, like, okay, nature's great, but that seems to be a little overwrought. Do remember, he's writing this during the Industrial Revolution. Cities were smog-covered and black with, you know, fog at, in the middle of the day. So comparatively, nature was probably a really nice place to be. Yeah, from there, it was a little bit of just doing everything. He stayed in the ministry until year 1900, and from what we can tell, he was he was pretty good at it. He was known for making decisions that moved the church forward, and he was a part of an elder-led church as well. I don't know if, if your church has maybe an elder board or a deacon board that, that votes on things to move forward or not. Uh, it can be it can be a, a chore sometimes. It can be a process to get everybody on the same page, but it seems to be that's what he was really gifted at because he was known for having the elders unanimously unanimously agreed to move projects and events forward. And so he had a great way to unify the church, and it shows in his church too. It doubled in size over a very short time and ended up being very successful. It was during these years that he would write the sermon that we're going to listen to today. But he also wrote a lot of books during this era as well. He had a particular passion for Christmas stories, and he wrote The First Christmas Tree and The Fourth Wise Man, if you've ever heard of those writings. I'd, Christmas actually wasn't always the most celebrated of holidays. In the late 1800s, kind of Christmas comes back in vogue, if that makes sense. That might have been what the interest was. And in I just noticed that of all the theologians, he had more writings on Christmas than any other we've really ever looked at. 
At the year of 1900, he was invited to be a professor at Princeton University. It's important to note, Princeton University, technically not the same school as Princeton Theological Seminary, but they are connected. Like, it, you know, one leads to the other. So they are, inter they're very much interconnected, but they're not exactly the same school. But Princeton University did recently have B.B. Warfield as one of its presidents. If you've heard our earlier episodes on Princeton, if you haven't gone back and listened to our mini episodes on B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, the most recent one we did on Charles Hodge, uh, we really recommend you do. There's kind of a story from beginning to end in all these episodes where we kind of discover more about Princeton and what's going on there. And so it helps to have all these episodes in the back of your mind. And if you haven't checked those episodes out, go and do so. It'll really make you kind of fall in love with that whole group and what was going on there more. Uh, he spent 23 years at Princeton University. He was writing. He did very well for himself, and he would stay a professor to some degree until about 1923. Um, it is in 1906 he would write his most important work, The Book of Common Worship. And he kind of did it with a committee, but it was definitely him spearheading it. Uh, this gave liturgical texts for preaching, funerals, feasts, pretty much every day of the year that you would need it. And it was a very influential book, a book that is, I mean, to, it been edited since then, but it's still being used uh, by the Presbyterian Church to this day. In 1908, he was asked to teach at the University of Paris for a year abroad, and he agreed to do it. And we think that it was because of that, because of experience abroad, that a couple years later, President Woodrow Wilson or I guess it was just Woodrow Wilson prior to that, was someone that he actually had as a classmate in Princeton and got to know during his teaching at Princeton. So he has this history with Wilson, and Wilson asked him, go be a diplomat, go be an ambassador in the Netherlands for the United States. And he had no experience being an ambassador or a diplomat, but uh, he did it. And like being a professor or a pastor, it was something that he took to really well and became really good at just in time for 1914 we have the we have the first world war breakout he's in the netherlands and so you have t many americans fleeing from germany and france to the netherlands for help and for two years van dyke oversaw and helped evacuate countless americans and took care of their needs throughout the war and, and as soon as that was over uh, he, he quit. He had enough of that. He was done. Yeah, he quit because he wanted to help win the fight against the Germans. So at the age of 64, like most young uh, men who go to war, no, not at all, right? Like at 64, <laughs> you're done. You let the young whippersnappers do that. But not him. He decided to join the Navy as a chaplain, and he would serve on a sea until the end of the war. Um, during that time, he'd preach a lot of sermons to the, to the men. Those sermons would get written down and sent back home to be books and to encourage people back home of what peace could look like. Uh, and after he did all that, he then goes back to being a professor. And in 1923, um, about five years after he's back, you know, he quits Princeton University, which may sound like, oh, he quit. No, he was 70 at this point. And so he's kind of done with all of that. He's going to take more of a, a back seat. But then five years later, uh, he goes back to his, his life's achievement, that book of common worship, this book being used everywhere, and says, you know, I don't think this is actually perfect. We can do it better. Let's kind of redo it a little bit. So he goes to the Presbyterian Church, gets assembly together, reworks it down a little bit, and they republish it in 1932, just one year before his death. Um, throughout his entire life, and just all throughout these times, he's preaching sermons, giving speeches, and writing books that are turning into bestsellers. He's a very accomplished person in that way. All right, Van Dyke, now to his controversies. How is he different than the people around him during this era? His contemporaries during this time, right? We got B.B. Warfield. We got Machen, also in Princeton, also kind of during this era. We have episodes on them and their thoughts on Princeton during this era. Great episodes. Go check them out. But Van Dyke was a little bit different. He was a bit of a modernist. 
compared to Warfield and Machen. One of the big things he wanted to push was for changes to the Westminster Confession. One of the big things that he wanted to see changed was in favor of unlimited atonement, this idea that Jesus' work on the cross paid for everybody's sins, not just the sins of the elect. Another thing that he wanted to see changed was that all infants were saved from hell, not just the infants of those who are elect. He also wanted to affirm that God's love transcended to the whole world. And finally, he wanted to remove language that said that the Pope was the Antichrist. These thoughts might not sound super controversial in today's day and age, but at the time, some people saw this as the beginning of the end for the Presbyterians. Others saw this as modernizing a bit of outdated ideas. Most people today would probably agree that the Pope is not the Antichrist after all. Yeah, generally, that's where most people land. Uh, the other problem was that he, uh, the, the other kind of big controversy of his day was that he and Jay Gresham, Machen, uh, they went at it a little bit. Machen being the far more fundamentalist member of Princeton. And again, we've done many episodes on these guys. I know we've said that multiple times, but that's because we have, and we really think that the story works well when you hear all of them. Uh, but he started preaching, uh, this Machen started preaching at Van Dyke's church that he kind of left and was when he was the professor, um, but he still kept going to the same old church, loved his church, but then they bring in Machen, and, and Machen, oh, this guy's a fundamentalist, I don't want anything to do with him. So Van Dyke gave up his pew in protest, which today that might not sound like much, but that was, I mean, you look over and didn't see Van Dyke sitting in his normal pew, and that, that was a big protest. Um, and it would eventually get Machen removed. Uh, that and other things would get Machen removed from that post. So these two, you know, were not getting along well, didn't even though they were at the same high. school. Yeah. Um, and if you're on one of these two sides, you might say, hey, well, the other guy's no good. Why am I even, you know, we might, why are we listening to a sermon by this guy? He sounds like he's on the wrong side of all this stuff. And I would say because these connections do not automatically taint and completely ruin a man. Another person who was uh, a big, you know, who was under Woodrow Wilson, who did a lot of things, William Jennings Bryan, for example, would end up being one of, uh, who we probably will do an episode on at some point, would end up being one of the biggest leaders of fundamentalism. And, and just because someone um, was on one side of these complicated issues or another doesn't mean that every single thing they did was necessarily bad. Van Dyke was a fantastic literary professor and wrote books that encouraged and inspired a lot of people to think more deeply about God. And I would say Van Dyke, a very good diplomat, a very good uh, 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 pastor, it would seem, and a very good literature writer, and maybe in some ways a good professor. But when he came to theology, he was actually, he reminds me of Alexander White, and that he did a, um, he maybe just went a little bit outside what he was supposed to do, maybe went a little bit too far, did a little too much in this way. Uh, maybe not the best ideas there, but that doesn't certainly, in my opinion, mean that we should scrap everything he did. I think that this sermon is a good one. I, I encourage you to listen to it. I think you will enjoy it. I think you'll actually find yourself going, I really like that. Actually, I think a lot of what he's saying right now is very much true. We need more of that today. Um, but we encourage you to listen to it and come come to your own conclusions. Tell us what you think and how you feel about that. This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden. The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better. The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? So we want to make the whole road safer. So that's the that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place 
but because they weren't also helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really want to bring both our, our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast, we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete ways of what it means to love our neighbors. You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts. In this sermon that we're about to listen to, Van Dyke describes why America is getting the rulers that she's getting and what Americans can do about it. He points out that it's the lives we live at home that lead to the rulers that we get abroad. Too many Americans are living with idols in their own homes, and then they're surprised that God has not blessed them with better rulers. Now therefore behold the king that you have chosen, and that you have desired, and behold the king has set a king over you. 1 Samuel 22.13 The sons of the revolution are honored and hereditary guests in the brick Presbyterian church. Many of the fathers of the revolution worshipped here in olden times. For this is a church of that Presbyterian order which was rightly judged to be so favorable to liberty that a Tory wrote of it 125 years ago, the Presbyterians must not be allowed to grow too great. They are all of Republican principles. The first bishop of this church, the Reverend Dr. John Rogers, was a chaplain in the Revolutionary Army, and its first edifice, at the corner of Beekman and Nassau Streets, had the distinction of being confiscated and turned into a hospital and a military prison of the enemies of our country. Its walls, which once echoed to the groans of those who were imprisoned for the cause of freedom, have crumbled into dust. But its ministers and its people hold fast to the faith of their forefathers, and this church has still a welcome and a message from the Word of God for the sons of the Revolution. You will find a truth appropriate for our consideration at this service commemorating Washington's birthday in the Declaration of Samuel to the Hebrew people at the coronation of their first king. Now therefore behold the king that you have chosen and that you have desired, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. 1 Samuel 22.13 Saul in Israel, and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and Nero in Rome, and William the Silent in Holland, Philip II in Spain, George III in Great Britain, and George Washington in America. All the powers that be, or have been, were ordained of God. And yet in every case the forces that have created them, and the causes that have exalted them, are to be sought in the character of the nations over which they have ruled. God ordains the power, but he ordains what is fit for the people. A bandit chief for a tribe of brigands, a tyrant for slaves, an inquisitor for bigots, a sovereign tax collector for a nation of shopkeepers, and a liberator for freemen. The ruler is but the example of the innermost thoughts, desires, and ambitions of the ruled, sometimes their punishment and sometimes their reward. Therefore we advance, 
subject to those limitations and exceptions that are always understood among intelligent people when they speak in broad terms, the general law, which is the theme of this sermon, the people are responsible for the character of their rulers. There are some complications which obscure the operations of this law in monarchy, an empire or an oligarchy, a hereditary crown, a sword transformed into a scepter, a transmitted title, gives an opportunity to usurp or extend unrighteous power. And yet, even here, a keen, clear eye can discern the people in the sovereign. Napoleon raised his empire of conquest cemented with blood, on a prepared foundation in the heart of France filled with the lust of military glory. George III obtained the power to nominate his own ministers of incompetent arrogance to carry out his policy of colonial oppression from a national conscience dulled by commercial appetites and a fat-witted spirit of loyalism fallen into a contemptuous distaste for the rights of others. But in a republic, this truth emerges distinct and vivid so that a child can read it. The rulers are chosen from the people by the people. The causes which produce the men and raise them to office, and clothe them with authority, are in the heart of the people. Therefore, in the long run, the people must be judged by and answer for the kind of men who rule over them. When we apply this law to the beginning of our history, it gives us ground for gratitude and noble pride of our homeland. George Washington is the incarnation of the spirit of 76, and the conclusive answer to all ideas of the revolution. No wild fanatic, no reckless socialist or anarchist, but a simple, sober, God-fearing, liberty-loving gentleman. He prized uprightness as the highest honor, and law as the bulwark of freedom, and peace as the greatest blessing, and was willing to live and die to defend them. This should be the typical American. He had his enemies who accused him of being an aristocrat, a conservative, a friend of the very England he was fighting, and who would have defamed and cast him down if they could. But the men of the Revolution held him up, because he was in their hearts, their hope, and their ideal. God ordained him as a power because the people chose him as their leader, and when we honor his memory, we honor theirs. We praise famous men and our fathers that made us. But will our children and our children's children have the same cause to thank and esteem us? Will they say of us as we say of our fathers, they were true patriots who loved their country with a loyal, steadfast love and desired it to be ruled by the best men? That depends on one thing, my brothers, and on one thing only and unalterable. Not on the chance of war, the necessity of revolution, the coming national crises. The obligation of patriotism is constant and its duties come every year. In peace or war, in prosperity or in adversity, the true patriot is he who maintains the highest ideal of honor, purity, and justice for his country's laws and rulers and actions. The true patriot is he who is willing to sacrifice his time and strength and prosperity to remove political shame and reform political corruption. He who would be ready to answer the bugle call to battle against a foreign foe. The true patriot is he who works and votes with the same courage that he would fight, in order that the noblest aspirations of a noble people may be embodied in the noblest rulers. For after all, when history completes the record and posterity pronounces the verdict, 
It is by the moral quality of their leaders and representatives that a people's patriotism must be judged. It is true that the sharp crisis of war flashes light upon this judgment. In the crisis of liberty, we see Washington has the proof that the revolution was for justice, not for selfishness, for order, not for anarchy. In the crisis of equality, we see Lincoln as the proof that the heart of the American nation was not like the king of Dahomey, who desired that the slave trade should be suppressed everywhere else, but tolerated in his own kingdom. And that the war of the Union was not a war of conquest over the South, but a war to deliver the captive and let the oppressed go free. Those two men were the central figures in the crises, but the causes which produced them and supported them in the focus of light, while men of violence raged and partisans imagined a vain thing, were hidden in the secret of the people's life and working in secret through years of peace and preparation. And when the third crisis comes, the crisis of fraternity and brotherhood, in which it will be determined whether a vast people of all sorts and conditions of men can live together in liberty and brotherhood, can they do it without standing armies or bloody revolts, without unjust laws which discriminate between the rich and the poor and crush the vital force of individuality, without laws that divide classes in the liberty and fraternity, I say, with the least possible government and the greatest possible security of life and property and freedom of action? When this imminent crisis comes, in which this great hope of our forefathers must be destroyed or fulfilled, the leaders who will wreck or rescue it and the ultimate result of that mighty conflict will simply represent the moral character and ideals of the American people. Now, the causes which control the development of national character are threefold, domestic, political, and religious, the home, the state, and the church. The home comes first because it is the seed plot and the nursery of virtue. A noble nation of ignoble households is impossible. Our greatest peril today is in the decline of domestic morality, discipline, and purity. The degradation of the poor by overcrowding in great tenements and the hiding of the rich into seclusions in luxurious palaces threaten the purity and vigor of old-fashioned American family life. If it vanishes, nothing can take its place. Show me a home where the tone of life is selfish, disorderly, or trivial, jaundiced by avarice, frivolous by fashion, or poisoned by moral skepticism, where success is worshipped and righteousness ignored, where there are two consciences, one for the private and one for the public use, where the boys are permitted to believe that religion has nothing to do with citizenship, and that their object must be to get as much as possible from the state, and to do as little as possible for it, where the girls are suffered to think that because they have yet no vote, they therefore have no duties to the commonwealth, and that the crowning glory of an American woman's life is to marry a man with money. Show me such a home, and I will show you a breeding place of enemies of the Republic. It has not yet, even in this favored land, seemed fit to that almighty being who rules over the universe to entrust the responsibility of voting to the hands of women. But he has given to the daughters of the revolution the far higher trust of training great men for their country's service. A great general like Napoleon may be produced in a military school. A great diplomatist like Metternich may be developed in a court. A great philosopher like Hegel might have evolved in a university. But a great man like Washington 
can only come from a Christian home. The greatness indeed, parental love itself cannot bestow, but the manliness one has is often a mother's gift. Teach your sons to respect themselves without asserting themselves. Teach them to think sound and wholesome thoughts, free from prejudice and passion. Teach them to speak the truth, even about their own party, and to pay their debts in the same money in which they were contracted. Teach them to prefer poverty to dishonor. Teach them to worship God by doing some useful work, to live honestly and cheerfully in such a station that they are fit to fill, and to love their country with an unselfish and uplifting love. Then they may not all become Washingtons, but they may have another one for their leader. And in the coming conflict between corporate capital and organized labor, if it must come, they will stand fast as the soldiers. Not of labor, nor of capital, but of that which is infinitely above them both, the sight of law and order and freedom. But the character of the people is not only molded by the tone of domestic and social life, it is also expressed and influenced by the tone of political life by the ideals and standards which prevail in the conduct of public affairs. And here it must be, must be confessed, our country gives us grave causes for anxiety. Our political standards have undoubtedly shifted from that foundation on which Washington placed them in his first inaugural, the principles of private morality. Take, for example, the appearance of governors of sovereign states who excuse and defend the destruction of life and property, which would be called murder and arson, if it were the work of individuals. But because it is committed by great labor unions which control public sentiment and votes, they say nothing. Take, for example, the unblushing audacity of legislators who propose that the government will pay a debt of a dollar with only 46 cents. Take for the terrible example the system of distributing public office as party spoils at the end of an election. Let me concentrate here and speak plain words. I say without hesitation that the spoils system is an organized treason against the Republic and transgression against moral law. It is a gross and unworthy inequity. Its emblem should not be the eagle, but the pelican, because it has the largest pouch. It shamelessly defies three of the Ten Commandments. It lies when it calls a public office a spoil. It covets when it desires to control that office for the benefit of party politics. And it steals when it converts that office from the service of the commonwealth into a gift to reward a partisan or a sacrifice to placate a faction. And for how many indirect violations of the other commandments, in Sabbath-breaking blasphemy, adultery, and murder, the spoil system is indirectly responsible? Let the private history of the rings and halls which it has created answer. But it is an idle amusement for clever cynics in the newspapers, and amiable citizens in their clubs, to abuse and berate the factory boss, while we all approve and sanction the vicious principle, to the victor belongs the spoils. This principle is the root of the evils which afflict us. There can be no real cure except one which is radical. Police investigations and periodical attempts to drive the rascals out do not go deep enough. We must see and say and feel that the whole spoils system from top to bottom is a flagrant immorality and a fertile mother of vices. The corruptions we have do not form themselves out of the air, it is bred in the system. Sons of the revolution kindle their indignation by contemplating the arrogance of the tea tax and the stamp act, 
which tyranny attempted to impose on freemen, I will tell you of two more arrogant inequities nearer home. The people of the largest state in the Union, not long ago, made a law that their civil service should be taken out of the domain of spoils and controlled by merit and efficiency. A committee appointed last year to investigate the working of the law reported that it had been systematically disregarded, evaded, and violated by the very governor elected and commissioners appointed to carry it into execution, so that the number of offices distributed as spoils had steadily increased and the proportion of appointments for merits and fitness had decreased 25%. In only a year and a half, that is the first transgression. And the second is like just as bad. The people of the largest city in the Union, regardless of party, joined hands last fall in a successful effort to drive out a corrupt and oppressive organization which had long fastened onto the spoils of local political offices. They elected a chief magistrate pledged to administer the affairs of the city on a business basis with a single eye to the welfare of the city, and without regard to partisan influence. This chief magistrate now appears to the men who elected him, like Banco's ghost or Judas, demanding that his faction should now have control and that his people should receive all kinds of offices and spoils. I say that is as impudent an iniquity as George III and his ministers ever proposed toward their American colonies. But who is responsible for it? I will tell you. The corporations from whom the parties get their gains in payment for his protection. The office seekers, high or low, who go to the parties for a place for themselves or for others. And the citizens who, by voting or not voting have year after year filled our legislative chambers with men who are willing to do the party's bidding for a slice of the action. Ah, but you say this year it's not going to work. This year we have found the one who is going to give us a clean city government. But if the cleansing is to be radical and permanent, if it is to pervade the entire fabric of government in state and nation, it can only be by breaking up and eradicating the whole system of irresponsible and haphazard corruption and by substituting for it the system of appointment for merit and fitness, under wise and just rules which throw the whole civil service of nation, city, and state open on equal terms. Think for a moment of what we have gained and what we have still to gain in this direction. There are 200,000 places in the civil service of the United States. In Washington's day they were counted by the hundreds, and yet he groaned under the burden of filling them and declared that he would make, when the pretensions of every candidate are brought to view, so far as my judgment will direct me, justice and the public good the sole objects of my pursuit. We must fill each of these jobs of service with good men, not men who get the jobs based on party spoils system. Burn the nests, and the rats will evacuate. Clean the sewers, and the malaria will abate. Let it be understood that our chief elective officers are no longer to be sent into the fields to feed the rats. And it will no longer be difficult to get the most honest men to serve. Let the people once thoroughly repudiate and disrupt the corrupt system, and it will fall away. But what has all this to do with religion and the church? Just this. A free church in a free state must exercise a direct and dominant moral influence upon the tone of domestic and political life. If not, 
then may God have mercy upon such dumb, impotent, and useless parody of Christianity. The church is set as a light in the world. Let it not be changed into a dark lantern and turned backward upon the scribes and Pharisees. Set it on a candlestick that it may give light to all that are in the house. Let the church shed the light of warning and reproof upon the immoral citizen who enjoys the benefits of citizenship but evades its responsibilities. The dishonest merchant who uses part of his gains to purchase political protection and his good reputation to cover the transactions. The faithless preacher who denounces the corruptions of government down in Judea and ignores the same corruptions in the United States. The lawyers who study the laws in order to defend their clients in evading them. And the officials who profess to serve the state and then add, the state, that's me. Above all, let the church shed the light of honor and glory upon the true heroes of the republic, the brave soldiers, the loyal citizens, the pure statesmen, that all men may know that the church recognizes these men as servants of the Most High God, because they were indeed and in truth the servants of the people. Let us not forget how the American church did her part in the revolution, inspiring, purifying, and blessing the struggle for justice and liberty. Let us not forget that she has a duty, no less sacred, in the conflicts of these latter days, to encourage men in the maintenance of that liberty which has been achieved and in the reform of all evils which threaten the purity of private and public life. To proclaim that our prosperity does not depend upon the false maxims of what is called practical politics, but as Washington said, upon religion and morality, those great pillars of human happiness, those firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. When the church evades or neglects this office of public prophecy, when she gives her strength to theological subtlety and ecclesiastical rivalry and clerical robbery and stands silent in the presence of corruption and indifferent to the progress of reform, her own bells will toll the death knell of her influence. Her sermons will be the funeral discourses of her power, and her music will be a processional to the grave of her own honor. But when she proclaims to all people, without fear or favor, the necessity of a good conscience and regenerating gospel in every sphere of human life, the reverence of men and the favor of God will crown the walls of Zion with perpetual and living light. As the servant of a church which has been loyal to this ideal in the past, I deliver her message in the present to the sons of the revolution. Be not the sons of the revolution after the flesh only, but also after the spirit. Be true to the principles of your forefathers and to the responsibilities of the citizenship which they bought with their blood. Hold fast to the four corners of their patriotic faith, the greatest possible liberty for the individual, the equality of taxation and representation, the purity and simplicity of a republic, and adherence to God's moral law as the only basis of national security. And remember, brothers, as we judge and honor our fathers by their choice of Washington to be their commander, even so will our children measure and esteem us by the character of the men whom we desire and choose to be our leaders in this free republic. (laughs) 
there are fun things in the sermon to me. I, I get entertained by Van Dyke complaining about like what it sounds like mob bosses or something, party bosses uh, running the city and the spoils system that he's kind of complaining about. Because to me, to th- today, those kind of sound like quaint complaints from a different era. Like, oh, that's cute. I, I almost wish that the smallest thing we had to worry about was that. At the same time, though, he points out that people get the leadership they deserve. And it comes from God and who your leaders are are not a surprise to God. He's chosen them in a sense. And so if you find your land is not being run well, instead of just complaining and complaining about what's going on at the top, start with working on changing what's going on in your own home life because God sees the heart. He sees what's happening behind closed doors and he is giving you leadership um, that will fit that in a sense. And so he's saying if we had uh, an America full of people who loved Jesus, who had no idols that they were worshiping quietly behind closed doors, uh, we probably wouldn't be seeing leadership that reflects so poorly on us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Josiah Kerrigan. Josiah lives in Washington State and is married with four kids. He is a teacher and is active in student ministry at his current church. He previously worked as a missionary overseas in Africa. If you liked today's episode of Revive Thoughts, check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the script for this episode and all of our episodes. We encourage you, if you enjoyed this episode, to join us on Patreon, uh, the Revive Thoughts Premium Team. It will get you a great link that will allow you to listen to all these episodes ad-free. It will also allow you to listen to our full deep dives. It will also uh, allow you to get a bookmark signed by Joel, myself, and Elise says she's going to start signing them too, so there'll oh, be there three go. names on the back of these bookmarks now. And we will also allow you to get some of the stickers coming out from us and what we're doing, so there's a lot of Represent stuff Represent Revive Thoughts. Perfect for a laptop or uh, a bookcase. Hydro flask. Whatever. Yeah, there you go. Whatever you like to me. You're at the gym, but you're trying to figure out how to let people know what you're listening to. No better way than having that uh, I like think stickered on your cheek but maybe if it's on a hydro flask or something like that as well <laughs> um, we also and most importantly it just helps us to bring you more of these episodes more of these shows and to do more of these things for you it is a lot easier when there is a steady stream of income that we can rely on that we can then make plans with uh, than when that is a little bit smaller and we can only go quite so far so we thank you for doing that every dollar has helped us a lot and we do donate a part of it to serve now to help pastors who need bikes get around in villages and other countries this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts the better samaritan podcast where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.